How are we today? I have to tell you that Siri kept interrupting my first message this morning. I'm up here talking, and then my iPad kept talking back to me. It was really confusing, so I've had a chat with Siri at the break, and hopefully she won't be interrupting me at all while I'm talking to you. Uh, how are we today? Like, good, really good? Who, who doesn't care about the Super Bowl? Yeah! I don't either, so I'm not going to mention it again. We have been talking about the Word of God, like they said, but there's a couple things I want to talk about briefly before I get into the content of my message. Um, First of all, that, uh, you know, we have a team in South Africa right now that has been working on restoring a factory to be used as a uh, church base for our friend uh, Paul, who oversees about 100 different churches in South Africa. Did I say South Africa or South America? South Africa and up the east coast of Africa, and this will be kind of his base. And so our team is just wrapping up their work over there. They had a celebration Sunday morning service this morning in South Africa, which was like eight hours ago. And uh, we've been getting photos and videos from Becky Voigt and Owen Voigt and the team, and it's gone very well. Uh, they, they're excited about what they were able to accomplish. Unfortunately, uh, you know, there's always a few incidents along the way. Becky split her head open walking right into an open window on accident she didn't see, and, you know, so she caused some panic for some people over there, and, uh, but really all in all, it's went very well, very excited. We were able to send a significant amount of money over there to help them do that. About 15,000 U.S. dollars went over to help them accomplish that, so I appreciate your guys' generosity. A lot of that came out of our missions fund, which people give towards regularly, and then, as you know, we took up an offering for that to accomplish that. Uh, it's, you know, living the mission right there. When Jesus left, he gave us a commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all nations. And some people around the planet are really doing a very good job at that. We want to get behind them and support them in those efforts. And so Paul is one of those places where we do that. So I just wanted to update you on that situation. Uh, let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would lead us through your scripture. Father, that you would lead me in talking about these issues that can be difficult to understand and sometimes manipulated to human advantage and twisted and things like that. I just pray for clarity from your spirit this morning. Pray for clarity from your word. Lord, I pray that people, all of us, would be stirred by the scripture, that our hearts would be drawn to you in this, Lord, that that your love and compassion and faithfulness to us would be revealed in these scriptures and as we study today. Father, I just ask that you'd lead me and and all of us here today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the last few weeks, I've been talking to you about the collection of books that are in the Bible. What is the Old Testament canon? What is the New Testament canon? Why do we regard these writings as Scripture? Why do we think they're the Word of God? How did our Bible, this collection of writings, come to be? Who wrote them? Uh, A lot of history we talked about. Uh, my friend, our friend Daniel was joking. He said, you, you went through my whole first semester of seminary in one message. And that is, I crammed way too much into two weeks worth of messages. So you're going to want to go back and listen to those through our podcast, through the website, because I seriously crammed way too much into a couple of messages just to get that information out there. If that's something you're interested in, it's something that's important for us to know and understand. We don't want to just fill our heads with information so that our heads get bigger and we win arguments at parties. It's so that we 
understand why we believe what we believe. Why is it the word of God? Why is it true? Why do we adhere to these beliefs? Why do we take them so seriously? And when we look into the history and we look at the process of God bringing the scripture into existence and those writing them, uh, we we gain a better understanding of what it means for us today. And today there are a lot of challenges to the scripture. There are a lot of uh, arguments against its historical accuracy. There are a lot of arguments as to whether or not portions of it are relevant anymore or how they're relevant. And there are arguments about how it gets interpreted. And those kinds of things. And that informs, ends up informing our view of God. But it really, today, I, I want you to hear my underlying motivation is not that our heads would be full of information that we would just be able to argue and be defiant and be uh, hateful towards people that we don't agree with. That's just not the intention at all. The intention is that the Word of God draws us to God. That the Word of God builds our relationship with God. It helps us understand who He is and how to relate to Him. And like Jason read about His precepts and His commands, the principles of God, that we would draw nearer to Him. How do we know truly who He is? How do we know what's true? There is a lot of opposition to the truthfulness of Scripture today. And so we have to be assured, why do we believe what we believe about the Scripture? Why do we believe it's the Word of God? Why do we regard it as an authority in our lives? And I've brushed on these things as I talked about how the canon of the Scripture came together, but today we're going to dive more deeply into the idea of the authority of God. I also talked about the Apocrypha, the additional writings that some other branches of Christianity have adopted as Scripture, and a little bit about why we do not consider those to be Scripture. Now, the word Scripture meaning the sacred writings, the Word of God, that ultimately they were inspired by God, and even though they were written by hundreds of people over the course of time, ultimately God was the author behind the Scripture. And we're going to look at the Scriptures themselves and see how they attest to that. Really, this is about a relationship with God. And that's what I want to stir you towards. I think uh, oftentimes, sometimes Christians get a bad rap um, because we believe differently than the culture around us. And so what happens is, you know, we get entrapped into arguments or we go looking for arguments and we, we think it's about arguing information and then we start to miss the point of the whole of the gospel, which is there's good news for humanity which Jesus loved everybody so much he laid down his life on our behalf. Not that we could have opinions in today's age to uh, try and nail other people to the wall with. Now, we want to be fully persuaded of what we think is right. That Yeah, we want to have reasons for our faith. But the way we wield them is so important that we do so with love and grace and the ability to help people in their journey not that we go out on the attack and try and hurt people with our knowledge. I think that's uh, something we have to be careful of as we're discussing the canon of the Scripture and then the authority of Scripture. Because sometimes the, what we would call the authority of Scripture has been used to abuse people. And that's wrong. That isn't the teaching of Christ and it isn't the teaching of the Scripture on the whole. So as we talk about the authority, we're also going to move into the interpretation of Scripture. How do we read it in order to understand it? How do we draw understanding? How do we interpret and know that the way we're interpreting things is at least reasonably accurate according to the Scripture? And I'm not going to be able to get into a lot of that today, but I hope to unpack that in the days ahead. I hope you read it. Really, at the end of today, the, the message today and in the days ahead, I hope you're motivated to read it. I hope you're motivated to yourself know what the scriptures say, which leads me to the first verse I want to be uh, 
sharing with you as I did last week. And it's Paul writing to Timothy, who has grown up in, 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 in the Lord under the, the leadership of Paul. And he says, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. This is my motivation, that you would be acquainted with the sacred writings. The scriptures are not just intended for somebody like me that preaches. They're intended for everybody. It's the word of God to his people. Even as they were writing it, it was meant to be circulated among the people. It was meant to be read in all the churches. It was written in the common language of the day, as we'll look at when we talk about the clarity of scripture later. And so this is, this is for all of us to read and to process and to draw near to God through his word. Are we acquainted with the sacred writings? Could I stand up here today and say something totally false and not have something inside of you go, wait a minute, is that true? That's not how I remember the scripture going. That's not what I recall. We should all be acquainted with the scripture. And we have a privilege You have a privilege in this day and age with the accessibility and the education. There's no excuse not to know what has God said to his people. So just like we were studying in the Old Testament a few weeks ago, in the written scripture was placed before the Lord and and Moses said, put it there as a witness. The word of God is a witness for us to what God has spoken throughout time and how he is related to his people. And that informs the way we relate to him today. So it's very important that I hope you just get stirred to read it yourself and understand it yourself and see, what does it say? How do I know it's true? Is it accurate? Those kind of things. Are we acquainted with the sacred writings, which, for this purpose, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We value development around here. We want to grow up in our faith. We want to become mature. How do we, if we set our sights on a more complete version of ourselves in Christ, how do we do that? Through the word, being acquainted with the scripture. What has God instructed us in? What does he say? How do I come to maturity? I do it through the word that I could be equipped. Also, I've mentioned this scripture over the last few weeks. I wanted to show you that I'm not jerking your chain and telling you it's in the Bible. It's there. I know you know this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How would we know anything about anything if we didn't have the account? If there wasn't the word of God as the witness for us, how would we ever come to faith? Faith comes by hearing. When the truth comes to us and our heart leaps at the sound of salvation in Christ Jesus, our faith comes alive. Why? Because the word came to us. When someone came to us and spoke the truth and we heard it and we believed it, our faith came alive and our salvation became real. Our faith comes from the word. If we don't have the word, what do we have to put our faith upon? Our opinions? Our hunches? Sometimes when I stop and consider how the scripture, even back to its ancient writings, has maintained its integrity through all of these years. I'm amazed at the faithfulness of God. And we talked about this. Ultimately, our faith that the the canon is accurate or that the scripture is true is our faith in the faithfulness of God. If I didn't believe the scripture, what would I have to believe? So then when I start cherry picking things out of the scripture and deciding they don't apply anymore, I better have a good reason for doing that. 
according to the Scripture. Because otherwise, I'm beginning to eliminate what is true, and I'm deviating further and further away from who God is. We talk about this idea of what is sin. Well, if God is, you know, we're relating to God and we're, we're, we're pursuing that relationship with him, and sin is really to miss the mark. It's misalignment. So if the character of God is this way, but I'm pursuing some other type of characteristics, I've broken away from my alignment with God. How do we stay on track? Through the scripture, the, the witness that has come to us where God is ultimately the author behind. They're inspired by the spirit of God. The If we start to decide that some of the scripture is not applicable or how it is applicable, and believe me, there's controversy about interpretation. I don't mean to minimize that. We're going to talk about that. So don't, you know, I'm sure there's all kinds of things coming up. What about this scripture or that? Or does the Old Testament law apply? And how does all this stuff work? Well, yeah, there is an interpretive issue there where we've got to read to understand how it applies to our lives for sure. But in that, there is a lot of controversy. But ultimately, if we start deciding that certain things don't apply to me, then we're starting to miss the mark from the character of God. Let me give you an example. I'll give you a South African example. How's this? In the South African culture, even in the Christian church, they have a real issue with the worship of ancestors. So the family members that have died before you, they worship them. And they're blessed or they're cursed based on how they sacrifice to their ancestors and everything else. Well, you would say that has no place in Christianity, right? It doesn't line up with the scripture. Okay. But... Because there's so much pressure in the culture and the society, there ends up being this blend of ancestor worship that gets into Christianity. And there ends up being a blend of both. Now, in our context today and here, in our understanding, we just kind of go, that doesn't make any sense to me. But they can look at American culture and see some of our cultural things that have worked into our Christianity and do the same thing. Things that we feel very tense about. I don't even want to bring any of them up. Because of how much tension they will create in this room. Because they don't line up with the scripture, but we have pressure from our culture to adopt them as true. And so I'm going to go ahead and pick some of the scriptures out and say, these no longer apply. And my justification is going to be because the culture says so. Now you have an issue with who's truly authoritative. And that's why we're talking about the authority of scripture. We need to know or understand why we believe the scripture is authoritative. The, the scripture is the word of God. The scripture is God's words. I want to uh, quote Wayne Grudem, who I've probably mentioned him to you before, but I think he articulates this really well in our understanding. Of course, I do not mean to say that every word of scripture was audibly spoken by God himself. Since the Bible was, records the words of hundreds of different people, such as King David and Peter and even Satan himself, but do... But, do I, but I do mean that even quotations of other people are God's reports of what they said and rightly interpreted in their context come to us with God's authority. So when we read through the scripture, we read parables, we read stories, we read history, we read prophecy, we read poetry and the Psalms and all these things written by all kinds of people. It's not that God took over people's bodies to write these things down. It's that he has been the ultimate inspirational author behind those things. And they came to be adopted as the word of God as time went on. And so that's how we regard the scripture. So when I read something that, you know, we're going to look at some of the things that Satan himself said to Jesus when he was tempting him. And it's not, it's not in our understanding that God said that or somehow God authorized what was said as being right, but that this is, but that this is God's report from God's perspective of these things that are going on by the author. 
We talked about this in the Old Testament canon. The Israelites going to war and, and being destroyed. And the reason for them losing certain battles was because they were worshiping the Baals and they were setting up the Asherah poles and worshiping other gods. And they end up getting defeated. Well, it gives God's interpretation because they had rejected the Lord, because they had followed false gods, etc., etc. So that's our understanding when we say the Scripture is God's words. We're saying it's God's report, His perspective, His, through His eyes, these events, written by human authors. Not that He spoke them audibly. That would be to misunderstand. But God did speak. We taught, when we started talking about the Word of God, we had words of personal address, words through human lips. The idea that that God speaks through man. And we see that in the Old Testament prophets specifically. Thus saith the Lord kind of things. So the prophet would come before the king or the people or whoever says, thus saith the Lord, do this, do that. And so he was, you know, just like God promised to Moses, after you I will raise up brothers from among you that will speak on my behalf to the people. It'll be an authoritative voice, the voice of God. And so we see this succession of the prophets and they do just that throughout the centuries. They're the ones that are the spokespersons, if you will, for God and their words come to pass. I want to look at a few of them just to give you some examples that, that these are, you know, very literal kind of examples um, of the word of God. So this is in 1 Kings chapter 16. Thus Zimri, who was a king of Israel for about seven whole days, all the house destroyed all the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. Now you'd have to go back and read the stories. There's, there's some crazy stories that the Israeli kings and the kings of Judah uh, endured. But God had had enough of uh, Basha and what he had done. He prophesied in the generation that he would destroy him and his house, and he did it through Zimri, who also himself got wiped out about seven days later. It was spoken beforehand by Jehu the prophet. This is how the Jews uh, related to God. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. You all seen Veggie Tales, right? What are the, the peas that sing the song, the slushy song on the hill, uh, when they throw the slushies on the... Okay, never mind. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. This is somewhere in the neighborhood of like seven or 800 years after Joshua had destroyed Jericho. Okay, Joshua destroyed Jericho, and this is several hundred years later, and it says, In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abraham, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, Segeb according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. What is this talking about? What is this referring to? This guy started to build the city of Jericho, and he lost his first son and his youngest son. Well, 700 years earlier, we see that Joshua, who took over from Moses, was the successor, was speaking, but he was, he was not saying, thus saith the Lord. Joshua laid an oath on them at the time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Okay, so God, according to the later fulfillment of this prophecy, God had spoken through Joshua. So Joshua didn't have to stand up there and say, Thus saith the Lord, but they referred back to their sacred writings as ultimately the word of God, although someone else had said them. So there's a fulfillment. God had spoken something. It comes to pass 700 years later. There's hundreds of these. I'm just giving you a few examples. 
when they came back and told him, him being uh, Jehu had just become the king, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke against his servant, spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, in the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. Do I have your curiosity? What a wild story. You should go read it. But what this is, is, you know, Jehu had taken over as king. There was a prophetic word in advance. Jehu becomes the king, and he destroys the house of Ahab and Jezebel, who was in opposition to God's people. And he's saying, God had prophesied that this would come to pass, and it did. It was the word of God, even though it was coming through human agents. Anybody read that? Is this like a tongues and interpretation thing, or like, what is it? This is Greek, and it's something I think is really important for us to, to hone in on. And it's the passage, part of the passage of Scripture that we started out with this morning, uh, Timothy uh, 3.16. And, and what that says is, Pasa grafe theonustos. Pasa grafe theonustos. Okay, we started talking about that word grafe last week. Like, Jared, why are you doing this? You're teaching us Greek. I got enough of this in high school. Come on. Well, that word grafe is so important. It's 51 times it's in the New Testament. And it, and it can mean writing, but every single time in the Scripture that it is recorded, it is referring to the Old Testament canon, the Scripture. It, it, it's enough that even if you're a translator of the New Testament, the word grafe is Scripture. It's even capitalized. It was referring to a specific set of writings. Pasa grafe theonustos. So, you know, theo is where we get theology, God, theocracy, those kind of things, God, theo. Uh, Neustos, pneumatic, like your pneumatic tools, your air-powered tools, God breathed. It says, every scripture God breathed. All of the scriptures from the breath of God. So if we go back and we look at Timothy, we see which uh, all scripture is breathed out by God. Okay, what does this mean, though, for us? Why does this matter? It matters because those... Those words of Scripture are breathed by God, regardless of who the author actually was. This is where our faith is built upon the idea that these, this collection of writings is not just authored by historical figures, but that actually God himself has provided a witness for his people because he's faithful to describe to us our relationship of, with God and to give us the whole narrative of the redemption of mankind from the fall of man in the beginning to the coming of Christ as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, that we don't have to earn our salvation, but that he did it for us. All right, I'm probably way off track now. Peter, when he's teaching uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, and you'd have to read the context there to get everything out of there, what he's referring to, to which you would do well to pay attention. We need to pay attention to those things. As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, graphe, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Again, drawing attention to this idea that although the men, the people, the writers, they were prophesying, they were bringing the word of the Lord, they never did so by, ultimately by their own will, but God was behind it. It was breathed by God. What does that mean? If God speaks, it's authoritative. It is to be listened to. It's to be obeyed. It's to be understood as true. If God, if God didn't tell the truth, he couldn't be God. He wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. If God had other authority over him that dictated how he should or should not operate, like our opinions and stuff, then he would not be God. He would not be a God worthy of our worship. I want to turn to Matthew chapter 4. Since you all brought your Bibles today, right? You knew I was going to be talking about this. That dusty thing on the shelf. How many of you grew up with like just the great big Bible on the coffee table, like the whole family history in there and everything like that? Did you read it? I hope you read it. I hope you're drawn to the life-giving breath of fresh air that comes from the Scripture. When we look at the authority of Scripture, is it really authoritative in my life? Is it really something I should be leaning on as powerful? Well, I would point to the best example we can find in Scripture, and that's Jesus himself. How did he treat the Scripture? How did he wield it? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, before he'd really become a public figure. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Okay, so what's he doing? He's just been fasting. He's hungry. Satan comes and says, Hey, if you're really the Son of God, if this is true, you have the power to do this, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Seems like a logical idea. Maybe. But Jesus answered, it is written, it is written, this witness that God, God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger, the scripture teaches us, and then he started, and then he said, write this down, write this down, write this down, lay these writings up before the ark as a witness. So all of these writings are the witness of who God is and how God's people relate to him. And Jesus quotes and says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I mean, first of all, Jesus is drawing off the book of Deuteronomy, saying, this is what is written, and then also simultaneously drawing attention to the power of the word of God. How do we live? By what God has spoken to us. Where does real life come from? That faith in that word that God has spoken of redemption to his people. Jesus relied on the Word of God as authoritative. So authoritative. Listen, if, if the Word of God was not authoritative, why would Satan have to respond in any way? Think about that. If it was not authoritative, couldn't Satan just chuckle and keep going? He did for a bit, actually. And he challenged it. And we look at the next temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. <laughs> what did he, what's he doing? Satan is taking the scripture and he's saying, hey, Jesus, why don't you do this? Because it's written. What is written? He will command his angels concerning you. Referring back to Psalms. 
And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes Psalms to tempt Jesus. What is going on here? He's recognizing there's an, that there is authority in the Scripture, but he's twisting it to accomplish his own purposes. Here's the thing. Let's go back in time for a second. Way back. Creation, okay? Adam and Eve in the garden. What? How did that happen? How did the fall of man happen? How did sin come to be a part of the human race? How did death come to be part of our inheritance? Why did this whole problem start? Where did it start? It started with these words. Did God really say? Did God really say that? Did he? What what is he coming against? He's coming against the authority of what God has said. And he's trying to manipulate in Eve's mind what God really said. I think, therefore, it's logical for us to go, to, to understand the magnitude and the value and the importance to understand what has God said. What has God actually said? I mean, there's really simple ones like, yeah, money's the root of all evil. Did God really say that? What is it? The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. A little bit of a twist there to make you think something different than what it actually said. Who's the master of that? We have an enemy who seeks our destruction. Why? With a twisting of the word. How? With a twisting of the word. He took the scripture and twisted it to try and manipulate Jesus. What does Jesus say? Again, it is written, you shall not put your Lord, your God, to the test. Jesus defers to the whole. He didn't just take this cherry-picked thing, oh, he will command his angels concerning me. Good, I can drive 120 miles an hour down the road and not expect to get in a wreck. Does anybody do that? Well, the Bible says he'll command his angels concerning me. I have this promise, therefore I can act like an idiot. No, you missed the point. You cherry-picked something and made it mean something that it doesn't mean. Okay, let's talk about, here's another one. I mean, we do this all the time. And I think it can be good, but we don't know what to read in our Bible, so we just flop open to a verse and we put our finger on something and we hope that God speaks to us through it, right? Anybody ever done that? Be honest. I've done it, and actually I do think God uses that sometimes. But what about when you flip, you're like, okay, God, what do you want to share with me today? And I flip open the Bible and I stick my finger on there and it says, and Judas went and hanged himself. Uh, how do I interpret this? How do I make sense of this? I need a different scripture. And I flip through and then I, okay, what does this one say? And you go and do likewise. (laughs) Oh, that's silliness. It's misinterpretation. How can I, I have to understand. There are things like context and the whole salvation narrative and understanding the covenants that God has made with man to understand meaning that is in the scripture. So we have to be careful that we don't just cherry pick things out and make them mean things they don't mean or decide that they don't mean what they meant in the original sense. And we'll talk more about interpretation in the weeks ahead. But boy, we got to be, it's very authoritative and both Satan and Jesus recognize the authority of it and actually use it in dealing with one another because they're relying on the word of God as the ultimate authority. Neither one of them is going, I know the scripture says that, but I have this opinion. And that, therefore, somehow trumps the authority of scripture. We do this, too. 
We read something and we don't like it or we don't understand it or it, it somehow doesn't line up. Like it says, don't worship um, your ancestors. You know, like if you're a South African and it doesn't say that word for word, but we draw that understanding that we worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you worship. And so we're like, well, but that doesn't apply to me today. It doesn't mean anything now, right? Well, that's just my opinion. Can I show by the Scripture itself that it doesn't apply to me anymore? So when we look at the Old Testament law and we look at those clean and unclean foods, we know that those meant something in the relationship between God and man, and it helps us understand something about God. But we also know that the time came when Jesus himself declared that all foods would be clean. So I'm not obligated now to fulfill those food requirements. Does that mean I can't draw understanding of who God is and what God thinks through those Old Testament things? No, we need to know those things. In fact, I would suggest we're a little too quick to dismiss them and their meaning and their importance and value. Anyway, we go on to the story of Jesus and Satan in this situation in Matthew chapter 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, this ought to, there's some other things we can draw. I mean, if you were to start unpacking the scripture, what does this tell you about Satan? What does it tell you about the situation in the world? There are other scriptures we would tie in. I can't unpack all that today, but somehow Satan had the authority to do this. And how does Jesus respond? Okay, so Satan has used several tactics so far that we could probably draw a lot of lessons on if we wanted to, but in, we're just going to keep it on the surface of how Jesus handles it. He says, be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Matthew 4.10. What's he referring to? Not just some ancient thing that we don't know about. He's referring back to Deuteronomy. Again, what was given to God's people in the Old Testament, Jesus himself regarded as authoritative, able to be wielded in such a way as to determine truth and to determine how to handle his temptation in his situation. Very important things. I feel like if Jesus regarded the Scripture with that much authority, maybe we should too. Did God really say? Here's another example of why, why, why do we really believe that despite it being written by many people that the word of God is the word of God. Let's look at something Jesus said again. When he's dealing with a situation where, you know, the Pharisees were always trying, trying to get Jesus to trip up on some technicalities. And so they're asking him a question about divorce. And Jesus does something interesting here. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, have you not what? Read. What was the account? It was written. He's going back to the written word of God. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall be, become one flesh? A couple of different things here. I mean, first, first and foremost is obvious. Jesus is quoting Scripture as his foundational authority for what is true to answer this question, okay? But he's, he's, he's appealing also to something that God did way back in creation. That was thousands of years before that. How could that possibly still be applicable? It is. It's how God made things. 
I mean, we talked about the law of first mention. We see the, the story, the themes of the Bible beginning right in that creation story. And so what does he ref- He refers back to Genesis chapter 2 as authoritative to determine truth and their way of life in that time. So important that we don't miss this. Now, if we go to Genesis chapter 2, and I'm just going to read you some of the context because I, all I have up here is this scripture. Notice this here. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said. Who said, according to Jesus? Who created them? He who created them said this, right? But if we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and we read the context, it says, And and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Who's the speaker? Well, the quote ends there, so it's actually not Adam, but yes, Adam, but the narrator. It's not quoting God. It's who's ever telling the story, Moses, narrating the situation and explaining, Adam said this, and the quote ends of, she was taken out of man, and then it goes on to explain, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. So even though Moses wrote it, how does Jesus see it? That God was ultimately the author. God is the authority behind those writings. This kind of example is repeated. We talked about this the other day. The New Testament, in, the, in the New Testament writings, 290-some times, Jesus and the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament as authoritative. They recognized it not just as historical information, but as actually being inspired by God and given by God for their own relationship with him and how to grow in that. All right, one more example. I'll have to wrap her up for the day. <clears throat> After Jesus had ascended into heaven and Judas had died, he'd hanged himself, as we discovered earlier. Uh, the, Peter, they're, they're discussing what to do, and Peter says this. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke. The scripture had to be fulfilled. That should tell us something. Jesus himself said, and the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus said that. The scripture cannot be broken. How did Jesus regard it? Anyway, that's elsewhere. Just wanted to remind you of that. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. The Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. So David, King David, he's writing the Psalms, these songs. He was a musician. They came to be recognized as inspired by God, as the scripture, and they relied on the writing. Can you imagine if you wrote a song and a thousand years later, it's being looked at as prophetic and have been fulfilled through the death of Judas. It kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? Interesting thought. Anyway, he spoke through Judas. Skip down to verse 20. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So Peter quotes two lines from Old Testament Psalms that David had written, claiming that the Holy Spirit had spoke by the mouth of David. Who ultimately was behind those words. God. That's why we call it God's word. That's why we recognize it ultimately as authoritative if we see that it is scripture. That's why the whole issue over the Apocrypha is such a big deal. 
Because throughout the ages, it wasn't regarded as the word of God. It was valuable. They used it for some of their teaching and training, but it wasn't something that they could regard with enough significance to build the doctrine off of until they started having doctrinal controversy, and then it got grafted in as that authoritative word of God. Anyway, it's very important that we do that because we don't want to be attributing God as the author to something that he wasn't behind. That can be dangerous. But that's why we have to take it seriously, this whole question. And what's he quoting? He's quoting Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. All this just to make the point to you that they understood that these were the the Old Testament writings in their entirety were actually the words of God. And Peter again in Acts chapter 2. And he's quoting out of the book of Joel, the the prophecy of Joel. I I can't remember the Joel reference, 2.24 I think. And in the last days it shall be God declares, okay, what do I want to draw your attention to here? If you go back and read this in the book of Joel, the words God declares is not in there. Peter inserts this in his quotation of the prophecy. What's he saying? And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men see vision and dreams, etc. What, what do we notice about what Peter does? He's ascribing that God has declared through Joel. These are God's words that have come to pass. All right. Is your head hurt yet? Would you stand, please? I'm going to wrap it up here. I ended with this passage last week. would like to end with it again. This whole issue of, is the Bible something we should be relying on? How authoritative is it? Should I be reading it, or should I just leave that to clergyman or something like that. Uh, these are all issues that we wrestle with, and, and, and understandably, but we need to wrestle with them and not take issues for granted. We should understand why we have faith that these are the words of God. And of course, Isaiah 55, just a great passage that, that, that we have from God. We would say that Isaiah spoke it, but it was the words of God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So descriptive, the rain coming and the crops growing and the results of that rain on the earth. So shall be my word that, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Again, if we get too caught up in this, you know, all of the historical and the scientific, and that's how we're going to prove our faith and, and those kind of things. At the end of the day, our faith is in God. Our faith is in that He has been faithful, that He loves and cares, that He made a way for mankind to be restored to Him, and He continues to foster that on the earth. I don't think God's up in heaven going, boy, that first century church screwed it up and didn't get the right writings. My plans were foiled. I just don't think that's where God's at in this situation. I think we can trust that this is his word and we should be absorbing it. Father, we come before you, Lord, thankful for your word, thankful that you are faithful, thankful yet again that uh, your promises are true, your word is true, you are true, You're you're the definition of truth, you're the definition of justice, you're the definition of love. You define all those things in your character. And Lord, we, it's a mystery to us, and we, we can't understand all of it. And but God, we do, we do trust you in your word and trust that it will do what you've sent it to do. 
as it has done in so many of our hearts already. Pray that you continue to lead us and guide us and stir us and, and, and stir that curiosity in some of us, Lord, to continue to seek these things out, even if we don't believe them or even if we struggle with them. Lord, I pray that you would just encourage us to be seeking you in this. In Jesus' name, amen.